0: I'm Gwen. And I'm Wendy. Thank you for joining us on Farmworker Chronicles.
1: In this episode, we are going to do something a little bit different than we've done before. So Wendy and I had the opportunity to interview Lou, who used to work as a farm worker. And we are going to play some clips from that interview with him. And then I'm going to kind of interview Wendy to provide some context and talk about the shift from undocumented agricultural workers towards a rise in H2A workers in Ohio. Wendy, why are we doing this this way? Why am I interviewing you? Tell us a little bit more about yourself.
0: So apparently I got some experience, right? (laughs) Yeah, apparently. (laughs) I am an outreach paralegal with the Agricultural Worker and Immigrant Rights Practice Group, Legal Aid of Western Ohio. I coordinate outreach uh, to agricultural workers to inform them about their rights and to let them know about our free civil legal services. Prior to this work, I also worked at a couple other organizations working specifically with farm workers and the immigrant community, I think I know a thing or two. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like I mentioned, we are going to talk a little bit about the shift from undocumented agricultural workers towards H-2A workers being employed in Ohio. So what experience do you have working with those particular
0: populations, and have you seen that shift in the workforce? So Gwen, as long as I can remember, there's always been a mix of U.S. workers permanent residents, and people without a work authorization working in agriculture. And it's been no different in Northwest Ohio. So over the last 15 years of getting to know this community through the various roles I've, I've held, I have encountered seasonal and migrant farm workers from down south, specifically Texas and Florida. And nowadays, I see more single men coming to Northwest Ohio on H-2A visas. And it's very rare when I come across local seasonal farm workers that are following that traditional migrant stream.
1: Right. What are the consequences of this shift in the workforce towards H-2A workers?
0: So one of the biggest consequences I see is the displacement of U.S. workers. Employers are required to offer these jobs to prior year employees and then make an effort to recruit U.S. workers. But I don't see a concerted effort to recruit US workers to fill these jobs. So what I'm seeing on the ground is essentially the separation of these workforces, where one is getting paid the state minimum wage, and the other is receiving the higher wage, which is known as the AWARE. So the AWARE is the Adverse Effect Wage Rate. It's essentially the minimum wage that the Department of Labor has determined must be paid to US workers and H-2A workers who are doing the same job and the reason is to make sure that the wage does not displace US workers. What essentially is happening is that US workers are getting the lower paying jobs. And uh, to give an example is US workers are picking up jobs in packing houses where they're earning the state minimum wage of 1010 an hour, and the field work is being given to H2A workers which is a higher wage, it's seventeen, seventeen an hour. This is a huge difference in what someone's making in a week. It's essentially you know two hundred and eighty two dollars and eighty cents, which is my grocery budget for the entire month. Right. So and that's just a week.
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Let's hear a little bit from Lou in his first clip about his experience when he first
3: got here Porque cuando uno llega... When you
4: arrive from Mexico, you don't have any information about the U.S. You get together with friends and other folks and they tell you there's work in the fields at such and such a place, and that's
3: how one starts learning how life is over here.
0: So Lou's experience is relatable to that of others, especially um, to those that have no family ties or friends in the United States. It's often that new immigrants are very surprised at how challenging it is to find um, their footing when they first arrive to the United States. So having a social network can help ease some of that stress and navigating the environment of, and getting connected to resources. Lou's experience definitely is one that is common amongst the immigrant community when they first arrive.
1: And he talks a little bit about how like through that network right he got exposed to the agricultural workforce um and then he told us a little bit about what it was like to work in agriculture without work authorization let's hear what he had to say
2: and
4: what was that experience like working in the field
3: como. In Ohio, working with an employer, it's hard not to feel
4: like you don't have certain rights. If they tell you to do this and that, you do it, even if it's over your allotted hours. We must do it because they provide the housing, and
3: we work with them. Como que si ellos dicen algo, lo vamos a hacer y aunque sean más de las horas que uno trabaja, uno tiene que hacerlo porque como ellos dan la vivienda, have que trabajar ahí con ellos. I think
4: that one doesn't have the right to demand something in the field when one doesn't have papers. The employer will say they'll toss you out of your housing because you don't want to work. Therefore, you're subject to whatever they say. If they say, we're going to work 12 or 13-hour days, you must work. We're accustomed to doing
3: whatever they say. No, so think okay.
1: Lou shared a lot with us in that clip, and one of the things that he shared was that he felt like when he didn't have work authorization that he didn't have any rights as a worker. Is this a common feeling among agricultural workers without work authorization, and is it true in a legal sense or in a practical sense?
0: Yeah, so all individuals in the United States, regardless of their immigration status, have certain basic Um, rights under the U.S. Constitution, such as, you know, freedom of speech, religion, fair treatment, and um, privacy rights. Um, They can also file complaints with, you know, the Department of Labor for wage theft or with OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, for health and safety violations. However, despite these rights, many of the undocumented community feel as though they have no voice. Or rights of any kind, as Luce mm. you know, stated. Mm. Um, so they end up enduring a lot of mistreatment, you know, discrimination, sexism, and harassment at work, in order to continue earning money to support their families and and to pay off debt that they have incurred um, during their stay here in the United States, or even to pay back any debt they incurred um, to travel to the United States,
1: especially like. And that club he was saying, right, if you don't do what they say, they'll toss you out of your housing. That's such a, a risky thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It would make you feel like, well, I, I have to do what this person says, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, and like Lou mentioned, um, often undocumented workers will feel like they have no voice to speak up. And that can be a reality, right? If you're facing risks like being kicked out of your housing or, or other things that we've talked about on this podcast. But Um, It can be especially true for people with language barriers. So, Lou touched on this a little bit when we asked him what he would do differently,
4: knowing what he knows now. Coming from Mexico, you get used to the difference in this country compared to ours. That's why I believe all immigrants start from the same place when they come here. They have no idea what kind of work they'll find. And if they're in a place where no one speaks Spanish, it's even more challenging. That's why I think everyone goes through the same process when they come here.
3: It's more complicated. I think everyone starts with that. It's like a process that they have to live.
4: Have you had problems with people who don't speak Spanish? Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, like what?
4: Can you talk about it?
3: Sometimes, you work directly with people who don't speak Spanish. At times, we have to work with people who don't speak Spanish. They try to explain
4: things, but it's hard to understand them. And it can lead to mistreatment, especially because they're from here and we feel like we can't speak up. It's like we don't have a voice, and when we go through that, we think that if we say something, it'll only make things harder for
3: us. No tiene derecho a decirle esto. Piensa uno que no tiene derechos, pero cuando uno está en ese proceso, uno piensa que que si uno habla va a ser más difícil para uno.
0: Yeah, so communication is a major barrier for non-English speakers, uh, specifically in the workplace. As Lou mentioned, it's very hard to navigate that space, and so workers, unfortunately, are unable to advocate for themselves in those situations. They um, have to rely on someone to help them you know, many things get lost in translation. And, um, you know, workers miss out on a lot of traditional activities that go on in the workplace, when you can't communicate with your coworkers or the administration, right?
1: And he touched again, a little bit in that clip about um, the fear of speaking up. Do you have any reflections on that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, as we mentioned in prior episodes, you know, speaking up can cost you. So, you know, it can cost you a loss of hours. You can get demoted um, into a lower paying position. You can get fired Mm. or you can even get your entire crew fired. Right. Um, You know, you lose your temporary housing that's provided by your employer. Uh, Again, you know, loss of wages. So workers have to be really strategic about when and how they choose to speak up.
1: And sometimes there simply isn't time to speak up. Lou shared an experience he had as an undocumented worker where there is no time to speak up even if they had been brave enough to do so.
3: A mí me me toco una vez vivir un caso que estábamos trabajando con un americano y, y en, hubo un, por, por problemas de otras personas me echaron el problema a mí. I once
4: had an experience where I was working for an American, and a problem that others caused was blamed on me. The American wanted us to leave our housing right away, but that day, there was a hurricane. The hurricane was passing through, and that evening he said he wanted us out, and that if we weren't gone by morning, he would call the police to throw someone out at night and during a hurricane is just unjust. We're human beings and I don't think they see it that
3: way. If we knew
4: more about the laws, we could do more. For example, call the police
3: or sue them, but we have no idea. No es permitido. Si uno supiera más de las leyes de acá, uno podría hacer más cosas como por ejemplo llamarles el policía o demandarlos, pero uno no no tiene esa idea.
1: Spanish is not my first language and as Lou started telling this story I interrupted him a bit and said a hurricane (laughs) is that really what you just said um to make sure I was understanding him correctly that you know there was a hurricane coming that day and that same day the employer was telling him to get out right um Wendy how out of pocket does this story seem to you and why would an employer treat somebody this way
0: it's completely unbelievable like unfortunately Gwen like there are a lot of scummy people out there. I mean, (laughs) rats. (laughs) There has always been, you know, an unjust treatment of this labor force. And historically, people in this occupation have endured a lot of mistreatment, Mm. you know, impoverished whites worked the land, then Africans were kidnapped and enslaved and forced to work the land. Then Asians and Latinx people later joined this workforce and unjust treatment of this workforce still continues today. Right. You know, like our country was founded on white supremacy. You know, they inherited belief that whites are superior to black and brown people. We all have biases that inform our actions. And in this case, it resulted in an urgent emergency situation for these workers. And I can't say it any better than Lou. They were not seen as humans. Um, So this is a common narrative I hear from workers who have been exploited.
1: And one of the things, too, I don't think I could say it any better than Lou, either, that they weren't seen as humans. And one of the things that is supposed to protect workers, labor laws and whatnot, applies differently to someone who's here without work authorization, someone who's here as an H-2A worker, someone who's a U.S. citizen. And Lou had some experience working um, without work authorization alongside H-2A workers. So... And he talked about the perspective of, you know, that kind of difference of treatment from his perspective. Let's give it a listen.
2: ¿Llegaste a trabajar aquí en Ohio con trabajadores extranjeros que vienen con visas?
4: Have you ever worked alongside H-2A workers in Ohio?
3: Uh,
4: Mm -hmm. Yes, I've worked alongside workers with visas
3: where everyone was all mixed up.
4: Did you do the same work
3: that they do? Sometimes we do more work than them.
4: There are people who say no. I came here legally and if I want to do it, I'll do it. And if I don't, I won't. But we feel obligated to do the work.
2: You may not know this, but were you
4: getting paid the same wage that they were getting paid or were you getting paid less? We were paid less than them. They had a visa and a social security number and they earned more than those of us with nothing.
3: Do you think that still occurs today in your community? Pues yo creo que en ciertas partes sí pasa todavía. Eso yo creo que no va a cambiar hasta que uno se meta más eh I think that in certain places it still happens. It's not
4: going to change. The government doesn't allow companies to employ people without a social security number. So I don't think that happens there. But there are other companies where the government has not learned of this. And it continues happening.
2: Hace mucho, yo diría, pues un poquito más de 10 años antes de que se miraran contratados. La mayoría de la gente que trabajaba aquí en este pueblo de Willard Ten years
4: ago, before the influx of H2A workers, the majority of agricultural workers in this community, based on my experience, were locals or people who had come up from Florida and other states to work in the fields. However,
3: now we see a lot of H2A workers.
2: As a resident
4: here, have you noticed this shift in your experience?
3: Mm. There are
4: more H-2A workers now. I see the company taking them to the store to buy food. They take them to Walmart or other stores and provide them with transportation. In my day, there were no H-2A workers. There were only people without papers, and we didn't see anything like that.
1: So, Lou kind of talked about two main things in that clip. He talked about... I guess for lack of a better word, hierarchy amongst different kinds of workers in the agricultural sector. Um, and he talked about the workforce shift that we have mentioned before. Wendy, have you heard of kind of this hierarchy or caste system among agricultural workers and what are the implications of it?
0: It's more of a preference system, Gwen, um, that is taking advantage of the their workforce's vulnerabilities throughout our history, there has been and continue to be laws that exclude farm workers, such as the, you know, Fair Labor Standards Act, which explicitly excludes ag workers from Mm -hmm. overtime pay. So US workers are likely not going to do these jobs because they they can find higher paying jobs, jobs with higher benefits and that are safer. Um, They also know their rights and are less tolerant of, you know, just scummy people. And you have the undocumented workforce, that can work under the radar they tend to get paid in cash to do this work they you know desperately need this work and so then they will put up with a lot right and then you have the h2a workforce who is work authorized they're here um, on a temporary basis their visa is attached to their employer and in order for them to be invited to return, they have to produce, you know, quality work, and they have to complete their entire contract. So this workforce is less um, less likely to uh, complain because they want to come back. and in my experience from talking to h2a workers this workforce sometimes is also either escaping violence or is unable to travel to find work in their home country so um, when they are able to acquire a visa to come to the united states and work it's something that they hold very dear to themselves and so they're not going to um, just complain they're going to be very strategic about how they're going to going to go about complaining
1: so it seems like your status as whether you're work authorized or not and if you are work authorized the kind of work authorization that you have that will determine how you approach this work right and whether you're likely to speak up or not like I said we also touched on this kind of shift from local workers towards h2a workers why do we see more h2a workers now why is this shift happening in this workforce
0: I can't pin this down to just one thing but in my experience of working with this community i think it's been the increase in immigration enforcement in northwest ohio that has led to the increase in the h2a program so for example the immigration raid at the flower and gardening center in 2018 had a significant impact on the farm worker community in that area Uh, The raid led to displacement of U.S. workers, um, the loss of the workforce, and likely, out of fear of more immigration raids, the employer was pushed to use the H-2A program. The increased use of the H-2A program means more displacement of the local workforce. Thank
1: you, Wendy. for letting me interview you
0: on your own podcast.
1: Lastly, I just want to ask if there's anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about and if there's any big takeaways that you want our listeners to have.
0: All I really have left to say or want to say at this at this time is, you know, I want our listeners to know that farm workers, you know, who plant, harvest, and package the food in this country, regardless of their immigration status, all strive for the same things we all want, you know, security and prosperity. And our country is one of the wealthiest countries in this world. And we just have to do better to take care of the people who feed us.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Farmworker Chronicles.
0: We are your hosts and producers, Gwen and Wendy.
1: Our assistant producer is Jared Rosenberg.
0: Our executive producer is Chris Pfeiffer.
1: And we would like to thank our guest, Lou, for kindly agreeing to be interviewed and sharing his story
0: today. If you want to join the conversation, go to wgte.org fwc. Until next time, I'm Gwen. And I'm Wendy, reminding you to thank a farm worker. Bye. Bye.
4: WGTE. Voices around us.
1: WGTE is supported in part by the American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.